I'm kind of upset, though, Chad's no longer here because it took me a long time to learn his last name. I mean, I had to go to a speech therapist to learn Skilperart. I mean, that's a sign, you know, many of you are like that. Are we really going to be here? Is this going to be our church? We've got to learn his last name. Anybody have that, right? You're like, this is, we can't be here and just keep saying, you know, we're just first name base. That's all we do, right? You, you was like, and I worked at it. I did it in front of the mirror. I remember the first time I visited, and I, okay, Pastor Chad Skilperort. I said it really slow. I looked around. It seemed to be good enough. I don't think he even pronounces his name right, but now at least I can remember the name of your pastor, and that's good. Hey, you know, the first sermon that I ever preached uh, here, I started it with the 10 things wrong with Pastor Chad Skilperort. And uh, now that I think about it, that probably wasn't the best way to get to know people in the church. So today I'm going to do the 10 things wrong with Pastor Dan Birch. So take out your notes. Everybody ready? By the way, if you take notes, you get frustrated with me over time. I just see people <clears throat> they start throwing their notebooks. I'm not that linear, but we'll try to stay on some points here. But I, I, I thought we'd give the top 10 things wrong with Pastor Dan. Uh, let's see here. Uh, one of the things, uh, he's too skinny. He looks almost emaciated. Just doesn't look right, really. This would be appropriate. That too, far too skinny. Uh, he's a little vain, you can tell. His, his hairline's always judging my hairline. I don't know what that is. Just, here's your future, Dan, right here. That's your future. It keeps going. I'm the ghost of hairline future, right here. That's what you'll see. He's too talented, kind of shows off a little bit. He can play music. I can't play music. I, I remember one of the stories for our, our worship team. Um, I helped in the beginning. I was up there singing along with the team. My, my sister, Christine, leads worship at the church. And I remember one Sunday when I arrived, they, they, they greeted me before I went to the sanctuary. And they're like, Doug, you know, you probably don't have to be up there with us this week. It's okay. We got it. We got it figured out. Yeah, you can just sit and enjoy and worship like the rest of us. And I knew I was through off the team. You know, I knew. I, so I went and sat back down and Dan worshiped. And uh, you were just a high school kid. And I kind of let you do your own thing. I, I, I thought I have two options. I could be your pastor or your brother. In the long haul, I decided to be your brother and trust that God would pastor you. So there's lots of hands off. I always remind Dan of that as pastoring. When you started, it was like I just kind of hands off and trust that God would do his work, uh, but a little too talented because you're contrasting the rest of us pastors. And the other one is Dan's an incredible encourager. Anybody ever be encouraged by Dan? Like I like to be a grumpy curmudgeon and if pastors start encouraging people, then there's higher expectations. One of the hardest things is when Dan left our church is I missed that encouragement. I mean, he genuinely would encourage me and he would also laugh at the jokes that no one else laughed at. And I probably miss that most of all. A uh, little dis- disclaimer here. This is not how I normally preach. This is different. So if you're like, I wish Dan preached like that more. No, I don't preach this way normally. I'm different when I speak at churches. Uh, here's a hint. When you speak at your own church, your church becomes like your wife. They've heard your stories. They've heard your jokes. They don't laugh. They just go, oh, yeah, I don't like that. So all the things that you're laughing at, they're like, oh, yeah, we've, we've heard that before. So it's different. And then I, and I, I'm going through a series in Mark, and I'm, I'm doing some different things. But today I thought I'd be a little bit more free and just kind of just not wing it. But I've really I've written out a lot of different things here, and I just want to be led by the Spirit. I believe I'm an evangelist as well. 
And, and so uh, this is just something different. I don't normally preach this way. If today is a great message, you clearly heard me. If it's a lousy message, you weren't listening. That's what I would say, right? If it's, if it's a great message, clearly you heard what I had to say. If it's not, you're like, you just you need to go and pray and ask the Lord. <laughs> What's wrong? It's not my fault. Clearly yours. Wayne, if you don't get anything out of this, you need to repent, figure out what's wrong with yourself. So. But um, I'm, I'm going to just share what's on my heart. The other thing is Dan does not complain about his church. I have to say this. I don't know any of your garbage. I don't know any of your chaos. Some of you won't believe that, but I have to say that because sometimes I work in the prophetic and then people think, well, who told him that? Right. So in your own church, you can't work in the prophetic as much. Because you know everybody's stuff, right? So it's like some of you are struggling with pornography. Well, in your church, you know. So you have to kind of look around in the sky. Like, and those of you who are struggling in your marriage, and you, you can't look anyone in the eye. When you guest speak, you can look someone right in the eye. So I'm just going to look you in the eye. I'm going to say the things that come to my heart. But it's not some sort of manipulation or some sort of, Dan told me, here's the things I want you to kick out of the park here. Uh, let's do this. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your presence. I know you're here. I thank you for worship. It encouraged my heart greatly. I ask that you would just help us. You'd help us to hear your voice and to do your will. So the question I have, amen. Are you all in? I forgot to say amen there. <laughs> an hour and a half later. I'm supposed to open our eyes. <laughs> Don't worry. There's one sin scout who has his eyes open to make sure to see if everyone else had their eyes closed. Uh, are you all in? Are you all in? Like all in. Okay. No, you're not. Yeah. Are you all in? <laughs> I want to use a gambling terminology because I figured that would relate to you guys. Right? No, no. All in. Are you all? I knew your past. Are you all in completely? Are you? And, and here's the thing. When we say all in, sometimes we're like, oh, I don't. That's a tough thing. God wants us to be all in. I guess we should be all in. Uh, you know, that's the right thing to do. That's what Christians should do. You know, it's tough to be all in, but all in is a good thing. Here's one way for me to describe existence. You ever want a description of existence? Here I go. It's my best two cents. I don't know if I have it all figured out. If you get existence figured out, come and tell me. Sometimes I need to know that around three in the morning. What's existence? But here's an idea of existence. God took of himself and created us, right? God didn't take of some substance outside himself. That'd be scary. God wouldn't know us, right? The scripture says we are made in the image of God. I'll need head shakes as I preach. I'll need you to see if you're following me. My mom is here in case you lose track. I look to my mom. If she shakes her head, we're okay. If she starts going like this, that means move along. Move along. She's doing it right now. Move along. Which makes me not want to move along, but I digress. But existence, God took of himself and created us. The Bible says in the image of God, we're made. Now, we're not God. You're not God. Look to your spouse, say, you're not God. But we, some of you did that. You need to know that. Write that down. You're not God. But we were made in the image of God. God took of himself and created us. He didn't take outside of himself. Male and female, God took from himself. We need to understand that. Like the, the fullness of understanding what it means to be male or female comes from God, right? God didn't say, when it comes to women, I don't know. I'm just going to take a substance over here and create women. That'd be scary, right? God fully understands us, fully knows us. God made us. The New Testament says we're the body of Christ. It's not just a metaphor. It's reality. We're extensions of God. We are not God. No cults here. Not going to start a cult your first week. We're not going to start a cult. Might split the church, but we're not starting a cult. But you're not God. But you are made 
from the image of God and God took of himself and created you. Sometimes I see it like this, that God was everything and there was this amazing like like that. Not a big bang. I believe God created everything. But there's this aspect that God took of himself and he just allowed himself to be expressed in a billion different ways. He just like that because he's a creative God. That's just what he does. And you are created. You're an expression, an emanation of God's glory. The Bible says when you were created, he says, very good. And then the, the mystery, the mystery of all this is that God created the stars and the sun and the moon and all the things that are created. And nothing has been created that was not created by God. But when he created you, he said, very good. And when he created you, he gave you all kinds of giftings. He made you fruitful and to multiply and have dominion. He gave you all these things. And this is what God did. God gave you a choice. I see it like this. If you think, think of a big circle and then God took that circle and he made little circles and you're a little circle. And he allowed you at some level to stand outside of him. He allowed you at some level to have the choice to be a part of him or to not be a part of him. At some level, you're never really not a part of him because you still express him. You're made in his image, whether you follow him or not. That's why we're without excuse in Romans. This is without excuse, because we know through the things that were created that there's a creator God and we suppress that. We say, no, I don't want to believe that. That's not about the mountains. That's about you. You know, you were created. Everyone in rebellion here, you know, you're not an accident. You know that there's a greater purpose to your life. And the reason you know it is you're made from God. And so in some ways, we're like a body, but we're the only body where the hand has a choice that can not follow the mind like like I can be the hand of Christ, but this hand can start moving independently of the mind. It still can express God at some level. Humans express God, whether they follow God or not in our creativity. There's so many ways we express God. But we express God in rebellion or in submission. A rebellious hand is a hand that does its own thing, regardless of me. And people could even say, I kind of understand Doug through this hand. But it's a little disjointed, a little freakish, right? It's a horror film, right? But we really are allowed that. So existence to me is God says, okay, here's the good news. I made a way and we can go through the gospel, but I made a way for you to come back into that big circle. I made a way for you to come in. You could choose me. See, that's all in. All in is I choose to enter back in. We could bring up so many scriptures. What scriptures come to mind? I die. I no longer live. But Christ Jesus lives in me. Jesus says, let them be in me as I am in you. He's talking to the father. He says, as I am in you, father, let them be in me. That ultimately he's bringing us in. That's what all in means. Do you want back in? Do you want to choose to? I'm all in. I don't want to live out here alone. I don't want to live in isolation. I don't want to like. You know, reach a hand into the kingdom and then come out with some gifts and go live on my own. I don't want to hop back and forth from, from God's purposes to my purposes. The gift of love, though, is God gives you choice. Hey, anybody a Christian here? Raise your hand. Give it, give it a witness. Shout hallelujah. That's right. When you became a Christian, did you cease to think? Did you cease to have a mind? Did you cease to have a will? Some of you wish that had happened, like just God would take away your will. Often what we're praying for is, God, take away my will. He won't take away your will. Make it easier to follow you. Take away my will. I will follow you, Lord. I'll do whatever you say. I will worship you. But you have choice. You have choice. 
The temptation always is we can serve the created, or we can serve the creator. That's what it says in Romans 2. It says humans serve the created instead of the creator. And so even the relationships, like, anybody feel like you've been blessed by the Lord? Anyone? Anyone? Good. All right, those of you who have not, I'll talk to you about blessings. But the rest of you, we've been blessed, right? Anybody not like raising your hand? There we go. That's right. That's me. I don't do as I say. I'll make you do stuff. You can't make me. And I dish it out. I don't take it. But, but you've been blessed by the Lord, right? Well, here's the deal. You can take those blessings and you can serve yourself and you can serve God. So there's always a tension. It's always a tension to live in isolation and serve the blessings or to live in community and serve God. Are you all in? Are you all in? Are you willing to just say, I'm going to completely surrender? Are you ready, ready to give everything for the gospel? Philippians 1.1. I'm going to read a bit of this. Here's your homework. Read through all of Philippians. I'm not preaching this in our church. This isn't me taking a message from somewhere else and bringing it to you. I believe this is the Lord's word for today. In the last two days, I've been reading through Philippians over and over again. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul is in prison at this time. There's various stages of prison that Paul's in, right? Sometimes Paul is under house arrest. House arrest is a little bit more cushy. You just can't leave where you're at. In Caesarea, he was under house arrest for a while. And while under house arrest, he witnessed to all the guards and got a bunch of people saved. But uh, house arrest, you know, you just can't leave your house and there's a guard with you everywhere you go. Later in his life, he's in more dire straits. He's in places where he's in chains. Uh, it's interesting that Paul writes to the church when he's imprisoned. Would you write to people when you were imprisoned to help them out? Be honest about that. Like if you're in prison, I don't care if it's house arrest or not, but you're in prison. Some of you just when you're home and you can't go anywhere and the kids are driving you crazy. That's a form of prison for you, right? You just you don't understand how awful my week was. I couldn't leave my, you know, my spouse was at work all week. I was stuck here with the kids. They're going crazy. Nowhere to go. Nothing to do. I was stuck. I was imprisoned. Paul was in house arrest. You know what people would do? Hey, since you're under house arrest, Paul, why don't you solve our disputes for us? Like, you know, since you got nothing better to do, let's write you some letters. Like if you knew someone in prison, what letter would you write to them? Probably should encourage them. Probably say, hey, you know what we need to make sure is our friend in prison that we really encourage him. Let's not bother if we have disputes amongst ourselves. Let's not bother the guy in prison. Let's you know, he's done his part. If you were in prison under house arrest because you'd laid down your life for the church. In fact, you didn't get married. So the church could ultimately be your bride. You went from church to church. You witnessed the good news. You did everything you could to be a good father. And the fruit of it is you're in prison. And then they start sending you letters. And the letters are, can you mediate this dispute? The letters are criticizing you and your apostleship. By the way, since you're in prison, these are the things we think you did wrong. Would you have written back? What, what would your letter look like? My letter would not look like Holy Scripture. Can you be honest? Would your letter be Holy Scripture? Probably, you know, the most civil thing. I'm just not writing back. If they want me to figure this thing out, they can find me. They know where I am. I'm in prison. But Paul writes Holy Scripture from prison. Holy Scripture. He's a man who's never bound. The kingdom of God is never bound. It's always. But he's writing 
to defend the worth of his apostleship while he's in prison. And if you see this in Paul's letters, you'll see this theme that Paul will remind people when he's in prison. Paul is always thinking about his death, I believe. For many of his letters, he's thinking about his death because you'll follow this trend in Philippians. You'll see it and you'll see it in other letters as well. You know, first, he just praises God for them and brings them peace and lets them know they can relax. I'm not here to beat you up. The peace, the grace of God is here. You know, thanks for writing and complaining. He writes back. Uh, he doesn't spend a bunch of time, you know, complaining about his needs. He just gets right into, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be a good father. 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 And uh, first thing he does is remember, you know, when it started. He'll give some sort of thing of like, I think about all the good things that happened. I think about when this thing started. I think about how wonderful it was. I, you know, there's something in him that talks about all the good things that came before and about how good God has been and every remembrance of you and all this. And he thinks about and he reminds them, remember when we were together? Remember when I was preaching with you? Remember all the things that happened? Remember the joy when you received it? I remember it every day. I think about it this time when you came alive in Christ and he reminds them of that. And then he reminds them of the present. He'll talk about right now, and God is with us, even though I might be in prison. Depending upon where he is, the letters are a little different. He's trying to be a father. Say, don't worry, I'm in prison. Don't worry, you might end up in prison, but it's okay. Don't worry. Don't worry, don't be afraid. God was with us in the past. This is a father. This is what you do with your kid. God's been with us in the past, hasn't he? He's been good. Well, you're a little scared now. It's okay. God is with us today. I'm with you. I'm with you in spirit. We're here together. And then he'll go, the future. And he'll talk about these until God carries it on to completion. He'll talk about the future. And if you look at his letters carefully, the future, he's not trying to scare people. He's not trying to be morbid. But he's pointing this out. Whether I'm with you or not, you're going to be okay. Whether they release me or not, you're going to be okay. Whether I die or not, you're going to be okay. God is going to finish his work in you. And this is what I see in Philippians. Philippians 1.1 Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer, excuse me, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. Until now, verse six, See, he says your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this. And we've memorized this scripture that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion all the day of Jesus Christ or to the day of Jesus Christ or until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, he's writing as someone who believes he's going to die. He's encouraging them, but he's the past, the present, the future, the past, the present, the future. And he's reminding them that God's goodness is sufficient for every day of your life. 
then all his admonitions about being all in are based on this foundation. God has been good in the past. God is good in the present. And I can guarantee you one thing. He'll be good in the future, whether I'm with you or not. And it's my prayer that your love, verse 9, may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The question I have is, are you all in? Are you willing to make a permanent stand for the kingdom? You know, the New Testament church is very different than our church. Most of what we do is hypothetical. There's a lot of books out saying, you know what's wrong with the church? It's not like the New Testament. Anybody read those books? There's a whole publishing industry that's just about hating the church. As a talk show host, I get a book every week that says, what's wrong with the church? Church isn't friendly enough. Services are too long. Should be a house church. Should be a home church. Should be a cell network. Should be the, they're just everything that's being done is wrong and pagan. I'll show you the right way. To me, it's just a pharisaical attitude. The harvest is ripe and the workers are few. You know, the last people you should be attacking when the harvest is ripe, the workers. And that's what we're doing. We're attacking our own. People buy into that. Like, you know, why I don't go to that church. They don't feed me. We've got more resources than ever. Look at all our books. They're all based on tearing down the one thing that's right. You know why men don't go to church? It's the women's fault or in church and make church too feminine. Oh, it's your fault. It's the people who show up is the fault for the people in rebellion. Well, if the pastors were more this, then people would show up. If the music was more that, then people would show up. If there were more signs and wonders, then the people would show up. More miracles. By the way, you read your Bible, a lot of this happens. There's signs and wonders and miracles and great worship. And yet sometimes the people don't show up. But we live in a culture where we, we've learned to judge everything. It's a pharisaical culture where we believe if I just had something more, I'd be content. If I just had something more, I'd be happy. It's a mythology, by the way. It's a flat out antichrist mythology. Jesus did amazing miracles in cities. And you know what he said? He said, woe to you, Capernaum. Capernaum's where he did many miracles. That's where Peter lived. That's where so many of the stories in the Bible are. He says, you didn't repent. He said, woe to you. You didn't repent. It'll be easier for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Yeah, we think we need one more thing. We need something else to make us happy. This culture is very different than the New Testament world. It's very different because we get this way. We, we live in a culture right now where we think, well, if I just had different content, then I'd be happy. Here's the difference between the New Testament age, our church, our church and the New Testament age. We might preach the same content. But they had different consequences. Let me say this again. We may preach the same content, the gospel, but they had far different consequences. And I want to take you back there to the New Testament age. Because when they said yes to Christ, everything else was destroyed in their life. When they said yes to Christ, they lost all their friendships and relationships. When they said yes to Christ, they lost their, they lost their ability for a financial future. They lost their ability for a political future. When they said yes to Christ, to that gospel, they lost everything. Do we even have an equivalent in our society about that? The closest we would say is reaching the Muslim world, right? If in an extreme Muslim culture, if if someone converts to become a Muslim, what happens? You'll be killed. 
or in the more civil Muslim cultures. And it's true with Hindu, by the way. Sometimes we go with Hindu. We go, oh, well, they're just kind of, you know, it's the Beatles and Hinduism. No, extreme Hinduism is very militant. And if you become a Hindu or you become a Christian in Hindu culture, uh, you could be murdered or cast out from your family. Never spoken to again. I interviewed a Muslim man in Ethiopia who was in hiding for seven months, going from church to church to church because his family was seeking him to destroy him. We're worried about the government, you know, their own family. Christians are always like, ah, we're being attacked by the world. Christians in the New Testament were attacked by their family. In the New Testament era, uh, how did you choose your religion? You were born into it. So if your grandfather was a part of a mystery cult, you're part of a mystery cult. You don't get a choice. It's not like, I want to self-actualize here. I want to maybe go to college and experiment a little bit. No, you are what you were born into. You are what your culture is. We don't like that in America. Like we're a Muslim, you know, Muslim nation. Well, they should get to pick. They should get. No, no, no. You are what you're born into. In fact, you are like for. So for Dan, uh, your faith and my faith uh, would be whatever my dad's faith is. If he's the oldest male. But if you're not the oldest male, if your dad had been around, it'd be whatever his faith is. We don't get to choose. If I were your slave, I don't get to choose. Slaves are to be the religion of their master. Period. Wives, you don't get a choice. If you were a wife in the New Testament, no choice. You have no choice. You are the religion of your husband. Period. No choice. There is no choice. The moment you choose Christ, everything is destroyed. Everything. See, this is the thing that this breaks my heart when I think about, you know, people would come to see Jesus. Slaves would come to see Jesus. Uh, Notice the Bible talks a lot about the widows, the orphans, the poor, the women, the slaves. There's a lot of instruction to those people. Why? Because they take the brunt of it. They take the weight of it. Can you imagine you went to see Jesus and you're sick and he heals you like the woman with the issue of blood? You know, she touches his the hem of his garment and she's healed. And then she says, oh, I love this, Jesus. You are Messiah. You are Lord. But she says it quietly. Because she knows if I say it out loud, it's over. Slave probably wouldn't be killed, but beat to a point of. uh, Because slaves are property, so you don't want to get ruined your property. So we'll keep our property alive, but maybe we'll sell you. Maybe we'll send you away from your family. Maybe we'll take. Hey. Uh, you're, you know, even slave relationships, there were families of slaves where the husband and wife were both slaves. And if one became a Christian, sell that slave. You've shamed our house. See, they'd go to a meeting and quietly confess Jesus. But what's the second thing? You guys are doing this a little later. What's the next thing Jesus told everyone to do? Be baptized. We do it as a great celebration. It's like, woohoo, this is wonderful. It's a joy. The first baptisms were death services. Can you imagine going to a meeting, giving your life to Christ? And then God says, I, got, I need you to do one more thing. I need you to be baptized. Confess it to everyone. Can you like, hey, I saw your boy down by the river. Baptized for Jesus. What? We hear those stories, right? Like parents killing their kids who convert in other countries. 
This is what happened in the New Testament era. When people received Christ and they made a public confession of it, they were all in. See, I'm asking you to choose to be all in, but there's no choice once you get baptized. You're all in. There's no going back. It's almost like a gang, right? You can't go back. Even if you follow Jesus and you're like, oh, this is a bad idea because uh, I've lost everything and uh, people are trying to kill me and I have no future and uh, I could take me back, take me back. In that culture, you're not taken back. You're shamed forever. There's no going back. Like the Taliban, you don't quit the Taliban. If you quit the Taliban, you're their enemy. They'll take you out too. See, why am I bringing this all up? Because we take these holy scriptures and we translate them to a culture that is so different than the culture that they were reaching. Do you have a gospel that that's that powerful? Could you imagine, Dan, you and Mary and the kids praying, going, this is going to be your first week where you're the leader. And because of that, you may be martyred. Can you imagine preparing a message all week where you knew the fruit of your message would be martyrdom? How you would prepare it, how you would look at this, how you'd look at those around you. It's an all in. I don't know if I would do that. I cannot tell you honestly that I'd be preaching if martyrdom was a possibility. I can say it, but I've never faced it. And, you know, it's just hypothetical, right? It's like marriage counseling before people are married. It's all hypothetical. Oh, sure, I'll love him. We'll never fight. You know, it doesn't mean anything until you actually get married. I'm glad I won't be martyred. But this all in was tied to the gospel and it's no longer there. Now we have this concept of you get saved. And then maybe if you want to do some other stuff, you can. But we know you're saved. And you go to church if you're saved. And maybe you can do some other stuff if you want to. I used to joke, and we do this like visitors will say visitors. If you're a visitor, you don't have to give. And I've always thought that's kind of funny. It's like, it's like, well, I get it. You know, we're not all about money. But it's kind of like saying, if you're a visitor, you don't have to pray. If you don't want to, or we don't want you to pray. We don't want you to give. I've heard people like, we don't want you to give. It's like, that could be your offering. If the Lord tells you to give, give. If the Lord tells you to pray, pray. If the Lord tells you to speak, speak. But in those cultures, there was no user-friendly church. The moment you stepped in the doors, you're one of them. We say we need to get the gospel outside of the church. The only way you could get people in the church was the gospel had to go outside the church. Because the moment they came in, they were already considered enemies. You see how different it is? Like literally no one would just say, I'm going to try out this church. It's over. It's like we're going to try out the Taliban, right? And explain that to the government. Why don't you show it up, seeing how things were? Right? I mean, the FBI would be at your door. Well, I just thought I'd go in and look around. People would be at your door saying, what are you doing? Well, I didn't know if I was committed yet. I just wanted to show up, see what the Taliban was all about. Right? It's such a different culture. It was all in. This is a sermon that crushes my heart in the sense of, I know I stand because of grace. Because I don't know if I have that kind of faith in me. I don't know. But I know that we stand on the, on the shoulders of people who were martyred. We exist in this abundance. Because of people who gave everything. They gave their sons to be martyred and their daughters. 
They were murdered and raped and thrown to the lions and torn apart. Everything we have today comes from people being all in. Everything good in your life comes from people being all in. The Holy Scripture. You ever study the history of Scripture being written? People were put at the stake. They were murdered because they translated the word into a language people could understand. Every good thing we have came from people who were all in. And yet we stand on the edges and say a little bit of this. I wonder even if you can have the gospel in that context. I thank the Lord for his grace. I don't want you to be condemned, but I do want you to be troubled. Let's be troubled. We. By the way, I'm in the same. If you're like, well, how dare he? I'm wherever you are, right? I'm like in a place of if you're feeling judged or you don't know me, I do a good job. I'm just thinking for myself, would I really commit? I complain like, oh, I got a nasty email. Maybe I shouldn't do radio. He said, he called me an apostate. I'm always complaining to my wife. I can't do this. It's too much. God loves me, but I'm like, you know, what I, if it's like, okay, Doug, uh, how's your message going? It's pretty good. You you know, when you preach that, they're going to try to kill you. What would you preach, by the way? You know, it's kind of fun not to be user friendly. Like whoever's in the room, they're all in. Like, there are only two steps for, for faith, really. Well, two. There's probably three. My dad always told me that. Never say there's two things, because there could be a third. Like, here's the four things you need to know about God. I'm going to get to heaven, and God's going to go, there were five things. There were five things, Doug. <laughs> five. Like, wouldn't you hate that if someone did? Here, here's the three things you need to know about Dan. This is all you need to know. Would that offend you, right? Like, is, am I limited to three things? Yet we do that with God all the time. Just, here's the four things that God... Is and isn't. And I just lost track of my mind completely. I knew that would happen. My mom was shaking her head like that. Don't go there. What was I going to say? You may know where I left off. You don't know, do you? Ah, yes. Two things. I did this for you and you said it too, right? Two things. There's salvation. We need to bring people to Christ. And then there's discipleship, right? Once you're in Christ, to grow. Those are the two things. Oh, you guys just saved me. I did that. God purposely frustrated my mind so you could use your giftings. Okay. (laughs) But two things, right? To become a Christian and to be discipled. The modern church has, there's like two things. Become a Christian and find a way to keep people in church. Right now, no one wants to talk about it, but we're in a competition, and it ain't with the world. It's with other churches. Smaller churches are feeder churches to larger churches. Here's the cycle I usually see is like, there's a normal-sized church. 95% of churches are 200 or less. 95% uh, go from normal-sized church to mega church. Then we get this grown-up mega church, and then we do a home group with a bunch of the embittered people we met along the way. And then after that, the home group didn't work out because there's nothing better than inviting a bunch of embittered people into your home. (laughs) And then it's just you doing something different every five years as God's apostle. 
And so we buy into that spirit because you can make choices. You can come. You don't have to come. You can go. And so we all get caught in that. Like, okay, I got to make sure they're happy. And we do stuff to make sure people keep showing up, you know. At least I do. Maybe this, yeah, they're not going to show up if we don't do something. But you didn't have that option in the New Testament. You couldn't go anywhere. Their issue really was salvation. And then how do we exist as a body? Because this is it. We're a family. There's no other family. Here's an example of it. In Acts, uh, people would sell their possessions and throw it at the apostles' feet. Do you remember that? They'd they'd sell their possessions. Why were they doing that? Because if you became a Christian and you were not the eldest male, you lost all your inheritance. So there was a large group of people who lost everything. Everything. So who would be the people who were selling their possessions? Who are they? The oldest, right? So there's two groups, right? Those of you who are the oldest here, listen carefully because you're going to have to do a little bit more. There's the oldest who had the property. Like if the oldest male became a Christian, they're not disowned. They have their property. They have that. But if you're not, you lose everything. So there's all these poor amongst them. Would you like to come to church like that? I think some of us wouldn't want to walk in that door. Like, we'll show you missionary pictures of people somewhere else other than here. But what if you went to church and two-thirds of the people had just lost everything? And you had everything. It'd be kind of awkward. So, how's it going, man? Well, kicked out by my family. My grandpa's trying to kill me. Took everything from us. Uh, I don't longer have a career. We're in hiding. Lost everything. Now, how are you doing, Doug? I'm not the oldest male, but if I were the oldest male, oh, pretty much the same. Have our property, have our money, have our income. All right, I'll be praying for you. Let's all lay hands on Dan and pray that he gets a job, right? But what if the majority of the people had nothing? Let's play. And you had stuff. And you just keep praying for people, and you're like, this is... And so what they do? Because this was now their body... This was now their purpose. They were all in. They took their possessions and they sold them. And they laid them at the apostles' feet. Why at the apostles' feet? Well, here's the new daddy or here's the new leader. Or here's the new elder. They just lay, it's just, I'm just pointing out we're in a different culture. We're in a different world. Not to feel judged, but it should trouble us a little bit. We have the option. I'm glad I have the option not to be destroyed. Anybody want to, I'm glad, but I don't know if it's been a good option in some ways. What America wants, I don't know if we need that. People are really afraid, like, oh, you know, if we lose our positions of power in government, everything, what are we going to do? Well, you're probably going to start looking more like the church did in Acts. If we can't pray in school, how are we going to? Well, you're probably going to know what it's like when they prayed in Acts. They came in and people come to me and they'll use this to go. I was reading an Acts, and if our church wants to grow, they said they, they meet, met daily in the temple courts. So we need to meet more often. You know, meet enough. And that's why I don't come here because we don't meet enough and we're not friendly enough. And I'm like, good idea. And I'd like it if people met more, but it seems like we live in a culture where everybody's doing everything all the time everywhere else. And it is madness. It is. You know, if your kid's in soccer, they got a three, three practices a week for a four-year-old. It's absurd, right? It's completely absurd. And you're trying to figure out a way to exist in the culture, but not be co-opted by the culture. And you don't want to become like the Amish, where you're isolated by yourselves in your own little community. So you're trying to live in the world, but not be of the world. 
And so someone comes to me and they go, yeah, we should just do more of that. We should have more gathers. You know, we should gather together. But no one has ever come to me and said, you know, what we need to do more. We need to sell all our possessions and lay them at the feet of the pastor. No one has ever come to me and said that was a good idea. Never, never. But here's what happens in spirit led communities. Here's what happens in churches that are all in. The Holy Spirit rises up so that they have one purpose and people begin to submit one to another and they begin to unite, not based on what you can give me, but based on the fact that we are family, that we have been called together, that I am all in and I will love you whether you're on a good day or a bad day. I will love you whether you bless me or curse me. I am all in. I am all in. Submission is a sign of a spirit led community. And I hear people saying this. Well, a church, I understand, value everyone's giftings and value people's expressions. And no way should I be saying, hey, sell your possessions and give them to me. But something happens when you look at God and you say, I'm all in. And the people around you say, I'm all in. Something happens. God brings submission. And you begin to bless those around you. And you begin to say, do something with this. There's no need for a stewardship sermon. And you begin to see the needs in your community and those are your needs. And you weep with those who weep and you rejoice with those who rejoice. And when you take communion, it's not just about your five sins, but it's about the person next to you that you love. The Apostle Paul says you cannot even take communion if you're not considering the needs of others. He says it's not even communion. People would come in and they'd get drunk on communion. They'd eat all the food, drink, and they'd leave. And he'd say... You're not celebrating the Lord's Supper if you're just concerned with your own needs. And yet everything we made individual in my life and my sins and I'm not getting fed. You've been fed by the cross. Feed into others. You can't go anywhere in the New Testament like I'm not getting fed. I'm going to go back home. There's no home to go back to. It's all in. It's all in. This is what I want to get at. I was thinking of a baby metaphor. I was thinking of the idea of children. You got a child coming, another one coming on the way. And and I I want you to see your walk with God like a child. This is just the picture God gave me. I, I think it breaks down in some areas, but I think you'll get the main point. When that child is conceived in you, the child takes over. Any women who've had babies, can I get an amen? The child takes over. You don't get to say, well, you know, I... I'm not going to get bigger. I'm just going. No, the child takes over, right? You, you, you don't. You don't. Well, I don't know if I want that part of the pregnancy. I just want child takes over, takes over. My wife would gain 60 pounds with every pregnancy. She'd lose it. I wouldn't. These are paternity pounds right here. That's why I never lost. She's like that. But the baby takes over. And when that baby's born, the baby sets the agenda. And it should. I don't, I don't believe in the, the parenting that are like control the baby so the baby fits around your agenda. Yes, you train a child. But I really believe the baby sets the agenda. We're learning something in taking care of babies. We're learning something about how God takes care of us, frankly. The baby gets changed when the baby wants changed. The baby gets fed when the baby wants fed. How do you structure your work around the baby? How do you structure your finances around the baby? How do you structure every choice? The baby takes over. The baby changes everything. Isn't that true? Isn't it an option sometime to go, no, I don't want any baby anymore. No, I don't want any more of this. 
What if you saw the church like that? That God, he, he conceived something in you when you said yes to him. And if you could just see the church as something you're always responsible for. Always. The big church, but the little church too. Always. Could you see that? Could you be all in? Could you see that? That's hard. That's why people avoid having kids, right? Because the baby takes over. But once they're five, it's fine. There's no problem anymore, right? <laughs> and then once they're in grade school, it's, there's no stage. And a healthy parent, when do your kids stop being your kids? Never. In eternity, they're your brothers and sisters in Christ. But on earth, you're their father or you're their mother. You'd like to sometimes stop worrying, but you can't. You can't have a season not caring about your kids. If you do, you're an unhealthy parent. Well, it's just not, I just don't feel like being involved with my kids right now. Well, I, I kind of feel condemned and I got to get my stuff figured out before I help my kids. Could you see the church as a child entrusted to your care? And you will do everything to parent the church until God takes you home. Because you know what I love the image of? Some people have lost their kids before they've gone to meet God. When your child dies before you. My sister has stillborn children and we all know traumas and heartaches. But ideally, we want that when we die, something is going on after us. And that's how we want to treat the church. It's a vision that's bigger than us. Are you working for things bigger than you? Are you going to work for dreams you never see happen because it's bigger than you? All the great men and women of faith worked for things they didn't see come to fruition. I want to die with so many dreams unfulfilled. I want to die frustrated that I didn't get to see the fullness of what I parented. Are you willing to be all in? I think there is life and life abundantly in being all in. But it is scary. You know, an all in mindset. An all in mindset changes everything. I'm going to let God change the way I live. I'm going to let God change my marriage. You know, when somebody gave their life to Christ, that was everything. So they had to learn what does it mean to be a Christian spouse? They couldn't say, well, this is kind of my hobby on the side. It's all they had. Are you willing to be all in and finally learn how to be the spouse or the daughter or the son or the parent God called you to be? Will God be the defining characteristic of your life? When you're all in, it moves you from spectator to participant, from Pharisee to disciple, from judge to someone who loves if I were to look at our culture, we're a spectator culture full of Pharisees who judge. Everyone's an expert, but we're all standing on the outside. The church has become a place where we're building bigger and bigger spectator stands to judge the fewer and fewer people who are actually ministering. The harvest is ripe. The workers are few. You know the one warning about God destroying you? It's if you destroy the church. It's used temple term. God, uh, Paul says, y'all. It's a southern. It's y'all are the temple. 
And if you destroy the temple, God will destroy you. What is he saying? The place we should speak the most sacred about is the church. And when I'm in Starbucks, I hear so many people tearing down the most sacred thing God has given them, which is the church. We live in a pharisaical culture. Are you willing to be all in? Are you willing to say when someone speaks poorly of the church, they're speaking poorly of me? When someone destroys uh, the worship team, they're destroying me. When someone destroys a teacher, they're destroying me. When someone antagonizes anyone, anyone in this entire church, if, if I am speaking poorly of you, I'm slapping my face. Are you willing to say I am all in? You're my family. It's it. I have nothing else. I've left everything behind. The church will thrive if we're all in. We're the most dangerous people in our lives. Doesn't matter who gets elected. Doesn't matter who gets elected. You can have your opinions, but that is third tier stuff. Jesus walked the earth when the leader of the land was a pedophile, a raped young boys. Yet you don't even hear them mentioned. He says, my kingdom isn't about that. I've called you into the pleasure of the father. I've called you to align your purposes with God's purposes. And if you're all in, I'll use you. I'll pour you out as a drink offering. I'll close with these two stories. My, anybody know Pastor Corb Morgan? Probably not. Most people at the end, you know him. Pastor Corb Morgan pastored a church in Auburn for maybe 10 years. And now he's pastoring in another church. But uh, Corb had to close down his church. And I remember talking with Corb and uh, just seeing his heart break as he couldn't provide for his family. He couldn't get people to join the vision. And his church was dying. And Corb's the kind of pastor that would put us to shame. Because Corb would visit anyone in the hospital. And he'd talk to anyone in the midnight hour. And I don't do that. I do it sometimes, but not like Corb did. Corb was like, I'm going to meet whatever needs you have. And not in a, well, he was doing it wrong. He was just loving and pouring himself out. Well, I showed up to a service to encourage Corb. It was a Saturday night. He hadn't told me what he was doing, but he was closing the church. Because the denomination really wasn't taking care of him. He didn't want to hand it over to anyone else. He thought they were going to be hurt. I think he was right. So he's like, I will close this church down and I will help these people find out where they're supposed to go. But I showed up and I was sitting like over there in the church. And Corb announces, we got to close this thing down. And people begin to sob. They just wept and wept and wept. They were sobbing. This handful of people. And as I was sitting there, the Lord was saying, you watch this. You take note. The church is sacred. I love my bride. Are you going to see the church as something I do to prove my worth? And if we get enough people in the room, I could be someone important. Or am I going to love his bride? And whether a handful of people are there or thousands, I'm going to treat each person as the most sacred person in the room. As if I left everything to find you and you did too. And so we're accountable to each other. We left everything for each other. We're all in, so I must contend for your health, and you better contend for mine, because there's no going back. There's no plan B. And I'm not going to be a spectator anymore. 
That was a sacred gift to me, and it's a reminder. It's a reminder to me that so often we take for granted which is most important. That God has not only saved us, but he's brought us into a family. And just like any other family, it's as messy as all get out. Because it's just full of people. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I want you to get this picture as we're praying. Once I was feeling really morbid, literally, and I thought, I wonder when my parents are going to die. I know that sounds really morbid. But I thought to myself, Lord, would you show me a picture of them when they're dead? How old will they be? You know, I do lots of funerals as a pastor, and I just thought, oh, what, what will they look like? And I was expecting to see, you know, gray hairs, old man and old woman. Life lived well. But the Lord showed me a picture of my parents. My mom was this little girl. My dad was this young boy. And the Lord said, they died long ago. When they came to me, they accepted me. Said, I'm all in. They died. They're no longer living for this life. They're already taken care of. And I asked the Lord, well, when do I die? And he showed me as a little two-year-old. moment I could say yes to Jesus, I did. I'm asking some of you to be willing to die. It's a good thing you were created for God's purposes. You were created for His kingdom. He'll work through you. He's not here to harm you. He's here to free you. But are you willing just to die and say, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for the kingdom that never fades. I'm not going to worry about these things that rust and corrode and fade away. I'm going to lay myself down in the baptismal waters. And when I rise up, I will be a new creation. If you've never given your life to Christ, and you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and what you're saying is, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe you took my punishment. I deserve that punishment. You took it. You freed me. You became my righteousness. And so I will die with you. I'll say you were and you are my righteousness. If that's you and you've never given your life to Christ, and today you want that, you want to say, Lord, I die to myself. This is just for salvation. And I receive the fact that you died for my sins. And I believe that. So I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. If that's you, could you raise your hands so I can see you? point you out to anyone, but I want you to be able to raise your hand so we can share this together. If you want to give your life to Christ today. Thank you, Lord. I'd love it someday, maybe a year from now, if we could have an event where you invited unsaved ones to come. and They'll raise their hand if you invite them. But for us now, Lord, you know you're speaking to all of us. Dan said it so well through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're here to accept us, to get to know us, to help us. Lord, help us to be all in, not as a begrudgingly, like things I don't want to give up, but as the joy of our salvation, that you began a good work in us, 
that you're doing a good work in us and you're going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, to live within you, not as a spectator. Help us to walk with you. Help us to follow. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me?